Thank you, Randy and Tyler. Well, good morning to you. Take your Bible, if you will, and turn to Ephesians chapter... I'm sorry, we're going to be talking about the church at Ephesus, not Ephesians, but Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, and Paul is in Ephesus. And if you've been with us on Sunday morning, you know that we are going through the book of Acts. And we were in the 19th chapter of the book of Acts last Sunday. And if you will remember... Just to give you a little bit of an overview on the situation that the Apostle Paul finds himself in, he had traveled to Ephesus and he began to preach the gospel there. He would end up staying in Ephesus about three years, basically preaching and teaching the gospel. And if you were with us last Sunday, you notice in the first 20 verses of Acts chapter 19, we found uh, three or basically four things that happened there at the beginning of his ministry in Ephesus. The first thing that we found actually a couple of weeks ago was in the first few verses of chapter 19, uh, the Apostle Paul made sure that the Christians in Ephesus had the power of the Holy Spirit. And we spoke about the importance of being filled with the Spirit. That you and I cannot live the Christian life in our own willpower. Uh, it is impossible to live the, the Christian life. It is not simply a change in attitude. It is not simply turning over a new life, a new leaf. The Christian life is a supernatural life. And if you live the Christian life, you're going to have to live that life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that's what Paul did for the Ephesian believers. And then in uh, the next passage, in the next uh, couple of verses, verses 11 and 12, we saw that in Paul's ministry in Ephesus, that God saw fit to perform unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. And God did even handkerchiefs or, ap or aprons that perhaps Paul had used would be taken to someone and that person would be healed. And I made mention that we shouldn't expect you know, that shouldn't be the norm because what does unusual mean? The Bible says they were unusual miracles and we've got a lot of people in the education uh, field and I thought someone might know the definition of unusual and, and uh, miracle of miracles. Anne spoke up and said that she knew and that unusual meant not usual. That means it's not normal. That's not normally what happens. But God did something unusual in the life of the Apostle Paul and did some great miracles there in Ephesus. And then we saw the do-it-yourself religion. You know, the seven sons of Sceva, they saw what Paul was doing. He was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They said, hey, this looks like we could do this. This could help us uh, in our, quote, ministry. And so they tried it and it didn't work for them. And of course, do-it-yourself religion never works. There's only one kind of true religion and that's the real religion that the Bible teaches us about. And then we saw in the last couple of verses, verses 17 through 20, a picture of real religion. And you know it was real. You remember I quoted, and sometime I'm going to play you. There's about 12 minutes of tape I'm going to play you sometime in the near future of Robert, uh, I've forgotten his last name, but anyway, a guy that I watched his testimony, and I quoted the end of his testimony. He is a former convicted murderer in the Tennessee prison system, and he's a preacher of the gospel now, saved in prison. But he ended his testimony that I viewed here a few weeks ago. If you still is what you were, then you ain't. And I don't know how many theological degrees Brother Robert has. I surmise to guess not many. 
But I'll tell you, that's one of the greatest theological statements that you can learn. It simply means that if your life hasn't been changed by the gospel, then you don't have the gospel. The bottom line, when you come to Jesus, your life is radically changed. And we saw that, that folks were changing their life. They, many people were involved in black magic and the black arts. And the Bible says that they had books and even brought those books and they burned them. That was a signature that we are turning from our old life. We're not going to keep it stashed away. We might want to refer to it at some point. We're turning completely. We're burning the bridge. And, and we're, we're crossing the Rubicon, if you will. And we're moving forward. And I love how it ends in verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The word of the Lord in Ephesus, under the ministry of the Apostle Paul, grew mightily and prevailed. And the title of the message this morning is When the Good News is Bad News. When the Good News is Bad News. Now, we all know the gospel, that word gospel, you've heard numerous preachers break that down. It, it really means good news. And that's what I mean by the good news. When the gospel, when the good news is bad news. You say, well, I don't understand that. Well, hang on, and I think you will. Let's go down. Remember, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and was prevailing. To prevail means to overcome whatever is opposing you. So as Paul ministered in Ephesus and he spoke the gospel and he spoke the truth, there was opposition in unbelief and in many different ways, but the word of God was prevailing. It was winning the battle. People's hearts were being changed and more and more people were coming to Christ and changing their life. But the good news that those people heard was heard by some people in Ephesus not as good news, but as bad news. And let's find out. Look there in verse number 23. It says, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. I like that little phrase. A great commotion. Have you ever been in the middle of a great commotion? It's like a locomotion. You're just getting run over by a locomotion. A great commotion. A great commotion. There was a big stir. And it was all about, and we find a word here or a phrase, the way, and five times in the book of Acts, that phrase is used to describe Christianity. Simply, the way. There were no denominations. You couldn't say, you know, the Southern Baptists or the Pentecostals or the Catholics. It was just the way. The way. And there was a great commotion about the way. Well, what was the commotion all about? Well, verse 24 tells us, For a certain man named Demetrius, let's stop right there, if you're a Bible scholar, I know we always get intimidated. I know I've got all you Bible scholars out there. You're going to catch me in my errors and point them out to me. I just like, I just ask, please wait till after the sermon to inform me of my errors. I do welcome correction. I'm not above making errors. But let's stop there with Demetrius. There are two Demetriuses named in Scripture. The one here in Acts chapter 19, and then you might remember there's one that the Apostle John mentions in his third letter, 3 John. He mentions Demetrius 
We have no idea that they're the same. I can almost guarantee you they're not the same. Demetrius was kind of like John today, a very common name in the ancient Roman world. And this Demetrius here is opposed to the gospel. The Demetrius that John talks about in his letter is highly praised by uh, the apostle John. And he praises Demetrius and, and his faithfulness too. Uh, the gospel. But here we have this man, a man named Demetrius, and let's find out who this man is. First of all, it says that he is a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana and brought no small profit, which brought no small profit to the craftsman. And I'm going to just go ahead and read down through verse 27, then we'll come back. It says, He called them together, that is the craftsmen, with the workers of similar occupation, and said, Men, You know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana, may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now we talk, we're going to talk a little bit more about Diana. Diana is the Latin word, the Roman description of a goddess. The Greek word is Artemis. Really, it kind of morphed into the same goddess, but the Greeks called that goddess Artemis, and, and the Romans called her Diana. She was worshipped all throughout the Roman Empire and had been worshipped for centuries prior to this time all throughout that part of the world. And we could, I'm not going to waste a lot of time telling you about her. You can read about her, but she's kind of an interesting goddess there. But there was a temple in Ephesus... And by the way, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You've heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The pyramids are one of those, and I can't name them all to you right now. But one of those seven wonders was this temple right here in the city of Ephesus. Now, there's nothing left of that temple today. If you go to the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, if you go to the city of Ephesus today, there's one small little about, I don't know how high it is, but it's about a quarter of a pedestal of a column. That's all that's left of this great temple that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that stood when Paul was in Ephesus. And so, Ephesus, so, so this was a big deal. This was part of the Ephesian culture. It was part of their religion. And as we learn here from this man, Demetrius, for many people in that city, it was part of their livelihood. You take this man Demetrius. He was obviously a professional because he was a craftsman. He was an artist, a talented artist because what he did along with the others in his his guild is they, uh, they took silver or some type of metal and they would make little images of this goddess, Diana or Artemis. And of course they would sell them to the people at Ephesus and the people would put them in their homes and they would make shrines and, and it was... These guys were, were, he says himself. The Bible says that it brought no small profit to the craftsmen. And he himself says, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. So he was wealthy. He was a respected leader because he's able to call them all together. He was a good speaker because he was the one giving the speech, giving the talk. He was a leader. So here this, uh, this Demetrius is there 
And the good news is going about in Ephesus and people are hearing the truth that the God of creation cannot be made with hands. He's not an idol. There's only one God. And by the way, that's a place you could stop and camp out a little while. You know, when God revealed Himself to Abraham, all the world at that time worshipped many different gods. Every culture had, had many gods. And that's natural if you think about it. If no one had told you who God is, who God is, and you're just trying to figure it out on your own, you would become convinced there's a lot of forces at work in this, in this universe. And that's what the ancient people did. They said, well, you know, there must be a God of war, you know, that excites people to kill and, and, and fight and gives one people victory over another people. And, but then there's this thing called love. And, and, and there must be some deity about love and that makes people fall in love. And, and then there, but there must be a deity about growing crops. And, or the ocean. The ocean must have a God as powerful as it is. And, and the thunder... The sky must have a God. And people would come up with all of these gods that explained all the forces in nature and all the forces of the universe. And, and they would appeal to these gods if they were a seafarer. They'd go out on a boat and they'd, they'd appeal to the God of the oceans to keep us safe. Don't take us down to the depths. We want to placate the God of the ocean that a storm may not destroy us. And, and if they were wanting to have children, they would, they would plead to the fertility goddess to you know, give us many children. And so, just as we pray today, they prayed to many different gods. And of course, God revealed Himself to Abraham and told him who He was. Then revealed Himself to Moses. And Moses gave us the Ten Commandments in the first five books of the Bible. And, and we begin to have a picture that there are not many gods. Yes, there are many spirits. There are demons. There are angels. There are many forces at work in this universe, but there's only one Creator. And the Bible talks about how that people's minds were deluded and they worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. That's a picture of paganism. Paganism deifies the created. The creature, whether that creature is a spirit being or that creature is, or that created object is the moon or the stars or the universe. And here the Apostle Paul is in Ephesus and he's preaching the truth. There's one God. He is a spirit. You can't make him with wood or stone or silver. That doesn't do anything. As a matter of fact, he has prohibited you to do that. Because it takes your attention off of Him and puts it on an object. You're to worship Him. He's a spirit. And He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And so Paul begins to preach the truth. And remember that verse I read at the beginning? The Word of, the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. And, and that message was prevailing. People were hearing that message. They had shrines of Diana or Artemis in their home. They had always worshipped that goddess or whatever God they worshipped, and they were turning from that. And they were saying, we reject that. That's not true. We've been captive all these years by superstition and by false belief. But we hear the truth. Our hearts bear witness with the truth. The Holy Spirit gives evidence of the truth. And they begin to embrace the truth. And that's good news, right? Now that's bad news if you're Demetrius. It's bad news. Think about it. He's got a home on the lake overlooking Ephesus. He goes there on the weekends. I mean, he's got it made. People see him in the streets. Mr. Demetrius, good to see you. 
By the way, I need a couple of new shrines for my home. Demetrius has it made. And all of a sudden, here comes the gospel. And the gospel is setting people free from their bondage. And no longer are they in bondage to a statue. No longer do they have to pray to a piece of silver. Now they speak to the one true God. And they cast all of that aside. All of those who were involved in that trade begin to get angry. The bad news there, verse 26 and verse 27... He says, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout all, throughout all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours, here's the danger, we're about to lose our livelihood, it's going to fall into disrepute, we're not going to be respected anymore, but also the temple of our great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. The good news that was so good to the people being liberated, all of a sudden was bad news to those who were actually profiting from the bondage that those people were in. Now, think about it. What if revival broke out? I'm talking about true revival in our country, in our nation, in our community, in our state, in our country. You know, we, we have a drug epidemic. I mean, it was talked about in the uh, election. There are drugs everywhere. I mean, people are addicted to drugs, not just buying them from the guy on the street with his breeches about his ankles, but folks with an MD behind their name. They are often people's drug dealers. And they're enslaving people in addiction. And here we have, if all of a sudden the gospel was preached and there was a great revival and people were set free from their addiction to drugs and their alcoholism, that'd be good news, right? Well, not unless you're the guy selling them the drugs. Not unless you own a chain of liquor stores and you see your sales go down about 60%. Or you see your drug dealer, he can't make any money. Or you're selling coke, you're you're actually uh, growing cocoa plants down in South America that they make the cocaine out of. Well, then the good news is bad news. When the good news is bad news. Listen. When you come to Christ, your life is going to be changed. Let me repeat again from last Sunday. If you is what you were, you ain't. If your life hasn't changed, if anything is your security but Jesus, if anything is your foundation but Jesus, then my friend, you are not on the foundation who is Jesus. When the good news is bad news. I think about false religion. I think of all the people, just like these people in Ephesus, 
who are captivated in our day and time by superstition, who are captive to an idea that I've got to pay somebody to get me in touch with God. I've got to send money to the guy on television. I've got to pay. I'll never forget when we were in the Ukraine many years ago, we went around in a park and we began to share the gospel with some people. And some people, it was through an interpreter, we just simply asked, would you like for me to pray with you? And uh, one lady said, well, how much is it? I was taken back. I, I wasn't sure what she asked. I had to ask twice, well, well what do you mean? She said, well, well, yeah, I want you to pray for me, but, but how much does it cost? And she was so used to the Orthodox priest, I didn't realize this until the interpreter told me later, the Orthodox priest there, when they would go around, they would have usually holy water, and, and they would you know, sprinkle the holy water on people, and, and, and it was, they would pay them. You know, the, the, that was how they made money for the church. They were basically selling a blessing, in essence. And so here's this woman who has the idea that I have to pay some man for God to bless me. Well, what if the gospel touches that woman's heart and she suddenly realizes that the love of God cannot be bought and sold with money? As Paul told the man who wanted to purchase the power to lay his hands upon people that they might receive the Holy Spirit. He said, how much does that cost? I want to be able to do that. And if you remember, Paul said, you and your money perish. The, the gift of God cannot be bought with silver and gold. And when, when the gospel comes and the pastors and the preachers and, and the people that call themselves leaders and suddenly they are no longer standing between a person and God saying, well, you have to see me first and, and then I'll hook you up with God. You have to pay me first and, and then I'll, I'll hook you up with God. Well, when the good news comes and you realize that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man, there is no mediator but Him, then that's good news, right? Well, not unless your church is based on folks paying you to get them to God. Well, then that's bad news. That's bad news for you. So, when the good news in Ephesus became bad news, is when it began to affect the prosperity of those who were profiting off of the misery and the ignorance of others. Well, of course it doesn't end with his speech because he had a purpose to his speech. And in verse 28, the purpose bears fruit. He wanted to create a right. Well, look there in verse number 28. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Articus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the temple to the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice, with one voice cried and for about two hours Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now, I want to give you from this passage of Scripture 
the recipe for a riot. You ever seen a riot? Well, we, everybody's seen a riot, right? You got TVs, you've seen a riot. Don't raise your hand if you've been in a, a riot. You can confess to me later if you caused a riot at some point, if you instigated a riot. But did you know that here in the book of Ephesians, there is the recipe for a riot? And I look at our culture, our society today, especially in our, in our discourse with one another in the political spectrum and in many other spectrums, and it seems to me that we're fast approaching what they were involved in in Ephesus. Let me, let me tell you how it first of all began. It began in verse number 28 with uncontrolled anger. And when they heard this, they were full of wrath. Now, it's one thing to be angry. The Bible, you know, it's not a sin to be angry. As a matter of fact, if you never get angry, my grandfather told me this. It's not a scripture verse, but I, I think it's very true. You've heard me say it. If you never get angry, you're one, of, you're, you're one of two things. You're either a saint or you're good for nothing. Because everybody gets angry. The Bible says be angry and do not sin. But the idea here is that they were full of wrath. Meaning they were, had uncontrollable anger. It was, they were full and it was coming out. That they couldn't hold it in. They were full of wrath. They were full of anger. That's ingredient number one of a riot. And then notice ingredient number two. They begin to cry out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Of course, I didn't write this one down, but you could say being loud. That's certainly, certainly one. But verse 29 says, And the whole city was filled with confusion. First of all, uncontrolled anger. We could say being loud. Number three, confusion. In a riot, nobody knows what's going on. Everybody's dashing here and dashing there. Nobody really has any purpose. It's mass confusion. And then the Bible says, and they rushed into the theater. Haste. That's the recipe to a riot. You're, you're, you're so angry and you're so confused and you're in a hurry. They rushed into the theater and they seized Gaius and Articus. That's the fourth ingredient to a riot violence. That is signifying that it just take them by the arm and say, would you come with me? It means they grabbed them by force and drug them away. Violence is an ingredient, a recipe for a riot. And I love this one. This one's so true. Look there, it says in verse number 32, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Ignorance. This is either funny or very depressing. You ever seen them on news programs? They'll go out and they'll ask people on the street. No offense, young people, but a lot of times it's young people. Sometimes at these protests, they'll ask them a question. And I'm not very smart, but I'll know the answer or close to the answer to a lot of those questions. But some of the answers they give, and they, and they say, you know, here we are at, at this famous university, and, and these people look like they should be graduating. And they don't know simple questions. Ignorance. You've heard me say this. I borrowed it from Adrian Rogers. But you know the two greatest problems in America? Ignorance and apathy. But you know what? I don't really know and I don't care. I'm sorry. It takes you a while. To... I think I got that backwards. You know what the two biggest problems in America? And the guy said, I don't know and I don't care. Well, ignorance and apathy. You know, those are the two big problems. Well, the ingredients, the recipe of a riot, one of the recipe, one of the ingredients is ignorance. People are not knowledgeable about what's going on. They don't have a clue. 
It's like what everybody else is doing, so that's what we're going to do. Well, the last one, notice there in verse number 34, they bring out, or Alexander comes up, and there's some confusion among Bible scholars. Was he a believer? Some people think he was a believer, and he was, going to, he was a Jewish believer, and he was going to come forward and try to make a defense. Other people think that he was just a Jew living in Ephesus who wanted to come forward and basically say, hey, wait a minute. It's not us Jews, it's those Christians. But we don't know. Nobody knows what he was going to say because the bottom line is they, they wouldn't let him talk. He gets up to give a speech. He wants to calm people down, explain something to people, make a defense. But it says when they, he wanted to make a defense to the people, verse 33, but when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I left this one off, but here's a great recipe. Every rite has to have a chant, right? I won't repeat some of the ones. The first one that comes to my mind is from the 60s. I won't repeat it, but some of you will remember it. When the draft, you know, the draft protesters, I remember I was just a little kid, and that's the first curse word I ever heard as a little kid. Turned on the TV, and, and there are the folks where they were, they were going through, and they basically said, no, we won't go, but they put something in front of the no, you know. Okay. I'm glad you're all so pure that you don't even know what that word is. But that was their chant. Going up and down. We're not going. And they just made that chant over and over, over and over. We're not going. We're not going. But the other one that I mentioned, not the one I just said. A chant. And you listen today. People in a riot, they're always, they have a chant. No different 2,000 years. The people are different, but human nature is the same. Here they are. They've got this chant going. Somebody tries to get up and have a, have a discussion with them. Wait a minute, let's, have, let's talk about this. Let, let's try to find out what we're so angry about. Let, let's come together. Let, let, let's, let's have a discussion. And they find out he's not one of them. He's a Jew. So they throw him aside and they just chant, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Hey, some of you get to looking at your clocks. And I, I know I go a little long sometimes. And, and, but if pagans can stand it for two hours with the same thing being repeated, at least I do change words. I have a different sentence. But for two solid hours, it's just one big chant over and over again. And they refuse to listen to anybody else's opinion. That's the final recipe for a riot. I mean, if you want to have a discourse on, on how society should interact, it's not the way they did at Ephesus. And it seems that's where we're headed as a people and as a culture. Because what that turns in is to mob rule and violence. And that's exactly what they had there. But somebody stood up. You know, remember the Bible says that the government is there to punish evildoers. Well, that was true. Paul said it referring to the Roman government, as wicked a government as it was. And here it bears fruit. They're about to burn something down or, or, or kill somebody. But somebody from the government comes in and says, hold on now. Verse number 35, And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus or from heaven? Now, many people believe he's referring to a meteorite. We do know that, that, that meteorites were somewhat of their worship, that had been an object, had fallen from the sky. They assumed it came from Zeus and it was part of their temple worship. He says, Therefore... Since these things cannot be denied, 
You ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here, and listen to this. This is very important. For you have brought these men here. Now this is not a Christian. This is a Roman government official. He's talking about Paul, and he's talking about Paul's companions. And remember, they've been preaching the gospel for three years in this city. And people have been being saved and converted from paganism to Christianity. And they've been changing their lifestyle, throwing their idols away, burning their magic books. They've been turning to Jesus Christ and to the gospel. But do you think Paul was going around? Do you think he was speaking evil of their beliefs? Some folks might think that. You think maybe he was going down to the temple and throwing dirt on the statues of Diana? Or spitting on that statue saying, well, that's nothing. That's nothing. Notice what this guy said about Paul. To me, it's pretty important. And it might be a bit surprising. He says, for you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Think about that. One of the ways he quiets the crowd... First of all, he has the power of Rome behind him. But secondly, he says, now hold on a minute now. You brought these guys up here. These guys have not stolen anything from the temple. They're not thieves. They're, they're honest people. They haven't broken in. You know, so many terrible things have been done in the name of Christ, in the name of Christianity. Paul could have said, hey, you know, that is all that stuff y'all have given, y'all have given to the devil. It's about time God had it in His work. And, and, and we're going to break in one night, get a group of believers, and we're going to break in this temple, and we're going to get this stuff, and, and, and God made it anyway. It's His gold. It's His silver. And we're going to steal it from this devil temple, and we're going to put it into God's work. Well, I can imagine you could make a sermon off of that. You could, you could probably justify that to some degree if people would be willing to listen. But Paul did not. Paul did not take anything from the pagans, from the temple. And the most amazing thing, it says, and he is neither a blasphemer of your goddess. Now think about that for a moment. Obviously, Paul has been going around, even Demetrius, one of the, one of the accusations he had against Paul was that Paul had been going around telling everybody that God is not made out of silver. God is not an idol. But somehow as he preached, he walked a line between truth and stepping upon the convictions that those people held very deeply. And for many, many years, many centuries, they had held those convictions, the people in that city. So when Paul got up to preach, he didn't get up and, and, and preach, I don't believe, at least from what I can tell, just telling how about Diana and just talking bad about that goddess. Think about when he was in Athens, when he preached his sermon in Athens. Did he go around and explain how terrible those, those statues were? What did he do? He found a statue. To the, it grieved him in his spirit. He knew that those statues were, were nothing. If anything, they were demonic. But they certainly were not representations of the one true God. And it grieved him that those people were captivated by that superstition. And so he came to this one statue to the unknown God. And remember, he built his sermon on that. He said, men of Athens, I perceive that you are a very... The King James says superstitious. And you've heard me say that's really an un unfortunate uh, translation because he was, not, he was not trying to 
uh, he was not trying to offend them or insult them. Really a better translation is, I see that you are very religious. You're very devout people. You've got all these statues to God, so you're trying to find God. That's commendable. That's commendable. You're trying to find God. You know there's something bigger than you. And in your effort, you've made an idol to the unknown God. That's the one whom you are trying to worship without knowing His name that I would like to tell you about today. And that's how Paul began his sermon. Not with, a, uh, you know, not with a, uh, an attack upon Zeus or Apollo, but on taking a, a curiosity they already had about something they did not know and taking that and begin to pro- proclaim the gospel. So you see, Paul, as he preached, even though it caused this great riot, it was not because Paul was throwing mud at their goddess or disrespecting their goddess. He was preaching truth. He was telling them, I'm sorry, but that, that statue is not God. I'm not going to talk bad about your statue. I'm not going to insult you, but I'm just going to tell you plainly, that statue is not God. There's a God who made heaven and earth, and He is not that statue. And I want to tell you about that God. And the power of the Spirit began to convict people. And that's what changed people. Never make a mistake about it. It was not Paul's oratory skills. Remember what one of his detractors said about Paul? I believe it's in 2 Corinthians. He said, you know, you read Paul's letters. They're weighty and heavy. Very impressive, scary. But when you see him in person, he's not impressive at all. He's a great disappointment. You know, I read all his letters. I mean, you know, paraphrasing here. I read all Paul's letters. I was scared to death of him. And then he came to our church. Is this Paul? You've got to. Back in radio, or, you know, before television, radio days, you'd hear somebody on the radio. Still today, you, you know. You ever met one of your radio personality heroes? You've been listening to them. You know, and you got this picture of what they look like. And then you meet them and you're like, say it ain't so. Say it ain't so. I can never listen again. You know, say it ain't so. That's not the picture that I had of my radio personality hero. And that's the way it is with Paul. Paul had no great persona. He had no intimidating presence. Then when he walked in the room, everybody said, Oh, there's Paul. Listen how he speaks. Now, Apollos, remember, remember uh, Apollos and, and Priscilla? I'm, I'm sorry, Priscilla and Aquila. Um, I think Apollos, too, was a great orator in the early church. But Paul was not. It was the power of the Spirit that convicted and that drew people to him. So, when the good news is bad news, everybody's not going to be happy when people truly change their life for Jesus. Because you cannot remain the same and follow Jesus. Whatever it is that you have that is holding you down, Jesus wants to free you from that. That's what He came for. Remember what He said? I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And Jesus says, I am. Meaning, I am enough. Whatever you need, I am. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and give us a hymn of invitation. If you're here this morning, maybe God has spoken to you. It is the good news. The good news is that Jesus came to save sinners. I don't have time to go into it, but it's so interesting to me. Do you know who it was that embraced Jesus the most warmly? The sinners. Who was it that were His fiercest enemies and critics? The religious people of the day. Why? Because the good news of grace 
was not good news to them. It was bad news. Because I've built my whole life on the fact that I'm better than other people. That I'm not wicked like those other people. I'm not evil like those other people. I'm good. I'm, I'm moral. And grace comes. The Gospel comes and says, No, you're a sinner. And the thief can go to heaven. The murderer can go to heaven. As a matter of fact, though you may not be a thief or a murderer, if you're going to get to heaven, you have to come the same way the thief came and the murderer came. And that's the way of the cross. And that's why the cross, the preaching of the cross is called a rock of stumbling and offense. Because to many people it is not good news. It is an insult. How dare you say that I'm a sinner. But you are a sinner. And I am a sinner. And the only way to Jesus, they were called the way in the book of Acts because they were teaching the way. The only way to Jesus, no matter if you have a perfect history and you're one of the most moral people ever been, or if you sit here this morning and your heart is black with known sin or unknown sin, the path to heaven and the path to grace and forgiveness is the same for both. And that's the way of the cross. You're here today, maybe you want to come pray or you'd like for me to pray with you. You just obey the Holy Spirit as we stand and sing.